Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Russell Fryer, who's the CEO of Critical Metals, um, who are formerly who are formed to identify and acquire brownfield mining op- opportunities in strategic metal sector, um, as defined by the United States and the European Union. Their focus is on near-term production opportunities, prioritizing cash flow generation over exploration upside, and where the ball believes opportunities have been overlooked and under-analyzed. Um, their primary asset is uh, in the DRC, in the Katanga Copper Belt. Uh, Russell's career has been in the mining investment and equity space, um, working for some of the major global financial institutions. Um, and he's here today to uh, tell us a little bit more about Critical Metals and their story so far. So that's welcome, Russell, to the podcast. How are you doing, Russell? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Rob. No, appreciate your time as well. So, as we always start these uh, podcasts off, I just wonder if you can um, give us an overview of your of your career and your background, so our audience knows a little bit about about yourself. Um, from feedback, the 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 audience likes this part of uh, part of the podcast because they actually get to know the guest. Who, uh, if they don't already know you, they get to know the guest. So, um, I'll hand it over to you. Great, thank you. My background's in engineering. I, I studied uh, engineering in, in the United States um, and did my apprenticeship in engineering. Uh, at that time was Garrett Air Research, which is now Honeywell. Um, but I'd moved back to South Africa um, in 80, 1987 and started my career in, in investing portfolio management, uh, which led to the mining uh, part of my career about 1990, 1991 or so. So I've been investing in, in mines mostly listed mines since 1991. And the career has actually been interesting because, uh, you know, in the mid 1990s, you know, we were just coming out of apartheid in South Africa and companies were uh, held by law uh, in South Africa on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. They could not list offshore. And I was part of the team at Robert Fleming or Fleming Martin in this case that listed Billiton uh, on the London Stock Exchange, it was the first South African company to be allowed legally to list uh, outside of South Africa. And that was in 1997. And it was an interesting experience because, you know, it was the first real taste of what the heavyweight uh, global mining world had in store for me. And the reason why I say that is because the CEO at that time of Billiton was uh, Brian Gilbertson and the CFO of uh, Billiton was, <clears throat> excuse me, Mick Davis or Sir Mick Davis in this case. And that's when I had the pleasure of working with, uh, as a junior, with uh, Ian Hannum and Lloyd Pengelly. Um, Ian Hannum, which I'll talk about a bit later, is the second largest shareholder of Critical Metals PLC and uh, was the uh, chairman of JP Morgan Casino's Global Metals and Mining Team. And Lloyd Pengelly was the CEO of JP Morgan Casino's Global Metals and Mining Team. So my first taste of, of really what heavyweights really feel like and what it was like to work with was in 1997 uh, through the Spilton experience. In 2004, um, 
I had been, uh, had some unfortunate robberies in Johannesburg. So in 2004, I left Johannesburg and um, moved to uh, New York and worked on Wall Street. We did Wall Street uh, for a few years. When a $3 billion hedge fund came and, and had me manage their their metals and mining uh, sleeve, the metals and mining book and their investments. And um, so a lot of what we did was in the frontier emerging markets uh, at that point in time. And so, you know, you develop a Rolodex of investments or areas that you think are investable. And I just kept that Rolodex, um, uh, you know, rolling and growing until um, I started Critical Metals in, in 2018. And I relied on that Rolodex in order to investigate some of the opportunities that we have now. So really, we've got a you know, almost a 30-year uh, encyclopedia book of opportunities, you know, not only in Africa, but globally um, from the beginning of the career all the way until um, until I started uh, Critical Metals. So one of the things, just give us an overview of uh, Critical Metals. Um, and obviously, you said you started in 2018. Just wondering how the journey's been since then. Well, <laughs> it was December 17th, 2017. I was in New York City having lunch at the 21 Club. And uh, the person we were having lunch with, there was eight of us, was General David Petraeus. And, and he'd come out and said, never in the history of the world <clears throat> has a number two economic power not gone to war with the number one economic power. And at that time, I thought it was boots on the ground and tanks and missiles. Um, but the reality is, is it's an economic World War III that we really entered in, in 2010. And the reason why I say 2010 is because if you think about what China uh, did to Japan in 2010, they shut off the flow of the rare earths and the rare earth supply. So uh, Japan could not uh, develop any of its uh, electronics. And so that was really the shot across the bow that uh, the world didn't acknowledge at the time. So in 2018, in January, I thought about this economic World War III that we were getting ready to enter. And really it is, uh, it is a, a war of China controls uh, many minerals, 90% uh, plus in some cases, that the West relies on. And should those flow of those strategic or critical minerals uh, stop, you would see the Western economies fold. They would go into a uh, recession immediately. And if they had no jobs and the interest rates rose and such, you know, on a, on a two sigma or black swan event, you could actually see some type of depression. So we set up critical metals to take advantage of that. We're not a EV or a battery metals company. We're a company that's gonna supply those minerals and those metals that are critical to driving uh, the UK economy, the uh, EU economy, the US economies and such. And so when I say that, I, I point it to your mobile telephone or your laptop or your satellites or, you know, industries such as Airbus or British Aerospace or even to this day, think about Starlink and what Elon Musk is doing. Without the metals that we are going to supply, they would be impossible to, to succeed. So... You know, we uh, were fortunate enough to find an outstanding uh, copper cobalt mine. It's up. It started producing in January. Um, we are uh, ramping up production there, and we have a, a pipeline of other brownfields, M&A opportunities. Uh, in fact, I just spent 25 days in Africa with five different countries uh, investigating other uh, M&A opportunities. And so we are uh, 
fact, that's what I've been doing. I've been very quiet in the last week or so since I returned because, you know, there's a lot of uh, opportunities out there that we need to uh, try to push forward. And there's a lot of paperwork and analysis and, and reading and uh, modeling, you know, understanding how this, how the differentials of the prices um, affects profitability. So that's how the company started. Um, that's where we are today. And I think I've said in the past that we are looking to be in five different countries with five polymetallic mines uh, in the next two years. And, you know, that's still our target. And I think it's definitely achievable. And then 2023 is going to be a highly exciting year for, for critical metals and critical metal shareholders. Yes, so, so, so uh, yes, certainly. Um, where do you see the copper and gold markets uh, this time next year? So we're not involved with gold because it's not on the critical so, metals. Sorry, list. I, yeah, no, sorry, I said uh, copper and gold, uh, cobalt. Yes. So people think that uh, we're involved with cobalt because of the electric uh, vehicle industry, and we're not. We're involved with cobalt because you need cobalt for your high temperature aerospace applications. If you think about every aircraft engine that, you know, 737 or an Airbus 320 or the Airbus 380, um, all of them, all those engines take a massive amount of cobalt. If you think about the aerospace, again, you think about missiles and rockets and, and such, again, you need a cobalt alloy in order to uh, deflect the high heat and the high temperature. And one of the interesting parts about cobalt is that you know, you've got 443 nuclear reactors, new nuclear power plants that are scheduled and planned to be built. And cobalt is an integral part of that, uh, that building infrastructure. Without cobalt, you can't have a nuclear power plant, which means if you don't have nuclear power, you're not going to be able to hit your green targets by 2050. So you know, we, we see cobalt dropping as low as $20,000 a ton on an LME basis. It's not a problem. You know, that's really not a problem. And it's not a problem that, that electric car makers are uh, substituting cobalt for you know, manganese or for nickel or such. We, it doesn't bother us one bit. Um, we like polymetallic deposits. So for every ton of ore that we hoist, we get paid twice. So, you know, cobalt right now is not even in our financial models. And when it does come in, I expect cobalt could be bigger at Malulu in terms of profitability than the copper. So to answer your question, you know, I think cobalt can drop even further. Doesn't bother us one bit. And I think copper could go down to 7,500. Doesn't bother us one bit either. Because sooner or later, you'll see those South American copper mines, or you'll see uh, what's going on in Panama, or you'll see what's going on in Arizona in terms of the head grades. They're decreasing, which means their costs are going higher. Um, and you'll see those mines shut down before you'll see a mine in the Congo hypothetically, uh, Malulu shut down. So they will close up shop before Malulu will. Um, why don't you give us a, an update on Malulu? So Malulu started production about the third week of January. It's a right smack in the middle of the, the rain season. So the roads are, are a bit difficult to navigate right now. So you know our target is about 450 tons of copper ore per day. We're under that right now, but we're in ramp-up phase. The uh, rain season will end at the end of March, and we will rehabilitate the roads right afterwards and uh, start drilling. We'll start drilling this month um, so we can delineate uh, the ore body even further and obviously work towards that JORC report that we uh, were looking to, to create in Q2. Uh, 
Um, and we have we've had on Tuesday we had three uh, buyers on the property looking uh, at the samples and taking samples uh, to run through their processing plant. So there's no shortage of buyers. It's just a matter of uh, ramping up. So we are we're testing and stress testing the current equipment we have with the idea that we probably double up on the on the excavator and some of the other equipment, probably the trucks too, so we can move ore quicker from the ore body uh, to the uh, stack. And when do you expect to start selling uh, your product? Well, we could have sold it already. Uh, the The idea is really to not be a seller of ore, but to actually do value-added process. So, you know, we've got over 2,000 tons sitting in stockpile right now. We'd like to sell in lots of 3,000, 3,500, because that's roughly uh, 100 tons of copper cathode on the back end once you process it. Obviously, it's grade dependent. So uh, the idea is to uh, get to a steady state of 10,000 tons a month and then sit there and, and do that for a few months and say, okay, how do we get it from 10,000 tons a month to 20,000 tons a month? You know, do we need to widen the roads? Do we need uh, more excavators? Do we need more trucks? Do we need more more um, personnel on the ground? So we're, we've been very deliberate during the rain season and uh, slowly ramping up. But I believe that we'll be able to, to meet and beat our targets by the end of April, uh, by the end of May, probably. Uh, we should be at 10,000 tons a month. Um, can you talk through the acquisition of the final 21.5% of Medini Occidental, um, and what was the reasoning for this? Sure. So it's the final forty-three uh, percent. So the original transaction was that Critical Metals purchased a controlling stake, which was fifty-seven percent of the Mauritius Holding Company, and the Mauritius Holding Company uh, owned seventy percent of Malulu, and on a see-through basis, that's forty percent. And the other 43% were held in equal amounts between Medini Minerals and myself. And optically, it looks bad that I was an owner of the Mauritian Holding Company. And I had shareholders come to me and say, look, you know, it looks bad. You know, it looks like there's potential leakage um, sorted out. And ideally, we did. So the purchase price, which the market doesn't appreciate, was on a PE of 0.3 times. So, so what that means is for every million dollars that uh, cash flow goes through uh, Medini uh, Occidental, which is the Mauritian holding company, we really only paid 300000 for it. So it's highly accretive to shareholders. And once we start generating uh, profits, they will see that it was a, a, a highly beneficial uh, transaction for the shareholders. So the purchase of the 43% of Medini Occidental Mauritius that uh, wasn't held was 1.3 million pounds. So, you know, if I've just told you it's on a PE of of, of point, not point 0.3, it tells you what this what should generate in, in the first full year of operation. Um, and so we tidied that up. Now we own and control 70% of Malulu and Malulu can be highly cash generative. It will be highly, highly cash generative on the copper side. And the beauty that shareholders and ourselves are, are getting our grips around is understanding the, the uh, potential of the cobalt. And we actually took 10 cobalt samples uh, yesterday, day before for analysis, 
And I hope to have those released in the next 30 days or so into the market via an RNS. Obviously, you mentioned that you've just uh, recently started uh, production. What challenges do you see ahead and for the sort of remainder of the year? Well, so we've we've RNS that we're looking to do for the first 12 months, 120,000 tons. We can hit that target. Um, that 120,000 tons um, will be highly cash generative uh, to the shareholders. We get 70% of obviously the, the earnings on that. Our local partners get 30. We will take part of that and reinvest into uh, drilling and to delineating ore body. Uh, we will use part of that for more M&A. So, you know, future M&A either in country or in, in the neighboring countries. Um, I think shareholders will be pretty pleased on what potentially is, is coming down the road. Um, and then I think we need to be a beneficiator of materials. So we don't want to sell ore. We want to actually sell cobalt hydroxide and copper cathode. So we would look at uh, either building or buying uh, infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, it's a processing plant that would allow us to process our own ore. And, you know, watch the space. This, this, this has been uh, on the cards now for, for months on end. You know, what's most important for shareholders is to see uh, Malulu get up and, and running and producing and cash flow generative. Because once that happens, the banks all come and say, hey, look, don't you need some money? We see that you're, uh, you're up and running and you're making profits. Can we lend you some money for a second or third transaction? And that's exactly what's happening is, is uh, you know, I had a call this morning with the Pan-African Bank. Uh, I had several meetings with various banks while I was on my trip saying, hey, you guys have done a good job getting this up and running. Um, we want to be involved with your journey and we want to uh, see if there's any type of project finance, corporate finance, you know, that we can do on your future acquisitions. So it's actually a pretty exciting time. And, and I, I, I've been very quiet the last week or so because I've had my head down in in some of the potential contracts and financial models and such on on what's to follow from Malulu. One of you can just tell us a little bit about the the management team and and obviously sure. the main people involved. Sure. So John Kreff is the mine engineer. He's he's kind of the captain or the fly half of the of the team down there. He's a experienced thirty five year mine engineer. He's got experience in Congo. He's got experience in Central African Republic. He has experience in Rwanda. He has experience in uh, the uh, Republic of Congo uh, in West Africa. He's a South African uh, mine engineer. And then we have uh, Lloyd Kirtley, who's the project stroke field manager. He does everything that has to do with the camp and the HSE and compliance and uh, you know making sure the fuel is there you know, everything that, that one would need in order for camp support. Also South African, uh, also a mine engineer, and he's done a fantastic job. And in fact, we had we had a military person at the camp in early February, and he said that this camp at Malulu was built to as high a standard, if not higher, than any military camp that he'd seen uh, in his career. So they did, they've done an excellent job. We have uh, three geologists, uh, on the ground, and another mine engineer. We only hire, we try to hire local, so we only have two expats, and it's not our intention to have any further expats. Um, we 
this University of Limabashi puts out very talented individuals. In fact, I was on the phone to a chemical engineer this morning, and he's he's great. And so there's a there's a plethora of talents in the region, particularly that you know, mining is in the DNA of the Katanga province there in the Congo. So uh, we've got a camp that's built for 23 people, and um, we're getting ready to, I think the last three people arrive here towards the end of the month. And when I say arrive, it's obviously locals, but um, you know we need people on the ground as, uh, as support. So, uh, you know, up to 23 people at the end of this month. Uh, we've got equipment uh, that we lease. We don't own our equipment. So if it breaks down, they have to turn around and replace it. So it keeps the cost low. Uh, we'll look at owning equipment here, you know, in a year or two. Maybe we can get Caterpillar or one of these firms that could do uh, in-house financing. But right now, we've tried to keep uh, the cash burn low while uh, ramping up on the production and uh, we've got the people on the ground that have succeeded in doing this. Um, for our listeners that are listening, if there's any that are looking to invest in certain companies, why should they invest in critical metals? What what would what would you say is probably special about yourself? Um, your sort of unique selling points and why someone would invest their capital with you? Well, I don't know any other junior that's been put into production and, and soon in profitability as quick as we have, number one. Number two, we keep a a, a grip on the number of shares at issue. We've got uh, 59 million shares at issue. Um, we're not like other uh, businesses where they sprinkle around shares like uh, pixie dust and reward uh, everybody with these free options and free shares. Not one of our shares that I have that I've gotten for free and any, any warrant package that I have comes from, I have to pay for that after uh, after tax capital. And that's the same with uh, the rest of the board uh, and anybody else that we don't have any options. There is no option scheme. So we're well aligned. You know, when we buy a share via warrant exercise or whether we buy on the market, it's alongside the rest of the market. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of stories about CEOs say uh, they're aligned with shareholders because they've got shares. Those shares are free. Right? We don't we don't believe in free shares. We believe in the kind of the Bitcoin thesis, and that is there's a finite amount of shares. You must covet these shares as treasure. And you know Warren Buffett was the same with Berkshire Hathaway. He, he doesn't he doesn't do share splits. He keeps it at, at you know two hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand dollars a share because you want to covet that that uh, equity holding. So when I say that management's aligned with shareholders, we are truly aligned. Uh, we have to write checks from our own post-tax uh, capital. I guess the third point is, is you know, we're on a pretty aggressive M&A uh, pathway. And, you know, the transactions we're looking at uh, are all in production. Uh, one of them um, could be in production in six months, but the other two are all producing, I bet, at a small scale. So what happens is, is you don't have to worry about... Um, about uh, a delay in profitability or cash flow from from the investments that we invest in. So, you know, I think that there's three good reasons right there why the market actually should look at their company. Um, we've promised that uh, we'll be uh, in cash flowing uh, situations within 12 months or less. And with Malulu, once we re-listed uh, on the 20th of September, 2022, it was five months later we were starting to produce uh, copper for the market. And lastly, what's the outlook for the remainder of the year for critical metals during 
2023? Well, it's as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be a highly uh, exciting M and A journey. Um, you know, we to hit our target of, of five operating mines in five different jurisdictions in uh, two years. You know, we need at least two transactions this this year, if not more. And so I would expect uh, shareholders to wake up one day to an RNS that, you know, another mine has been acquired, uh, infrastructure has been acquired, you know, something else has been acquired, and we won't have to pass the hat to shareholders to fund it. We'll fund everything either via bank debt, because we have no debt on the balance sheet, or we'll fund it via internally generated cash flows. So, you know, the, the benefits to shareholders are that the share count keeps tight. Um, the profitability is there. And, you know, our second largest shareholder said, you know, in two years, you know, you really need to start paying a dividend because you'll be generating so much cash. So, you know, I think I think that, you know, 2023 is going to be really exciting. Uh, watch this space. Russell, really appreciate your time. Thank you for giving us uh, an update and your story with Critical Metals. Um, it sounds a great project. You're up and running um, and the future obviously looks bright. If our audience wants to reach out to you, if they have any questions, they want to follow your story, how can they go? How can they go about doing that? What social media platforms are you on? So we're on Twitter and um, and, uh, you know, we're pretty active on Twitter. The um, website criticalmetals.co.uk if you wanted to get a hold of me, you could go in there on the box and say, I want to get a hold of Russell Fryer and, um, and they'll forward it to me and then I'll reach out direct. I have lots of, I have daily interaction with shareholders. Some of the things I can't talk about, some of the questions are, are easy to answer, but um, you know, I welcome shareholder engagement. So, and then I'm going to be in London uh, March 20th to the 31st. So if somebody is not a shareholder, but is interested in the story, wants to get together with me, I'll make sure I, I set aside time to to tell the story and, and go over basically what I've what I've told you. There are uh, reports on the website, competent persons report. Obviously, the the readmission prospectus. There are uh, two analysts writing reports as I speak. So hopefully, there'll be some type of uh, sell side research report uh, coming out that'll help the market. Um, and you'll be able to get a hold of the analysts and ask questions there if you don't want to ask me questions. But uh, we're pretty user-friendly and shareholder-friendly. You know, we treat all shareholders the same. You know, the way we would want to be treated is if we were a retail shareholder. So um, by all means, reach out to me via the Critical Metals website, criticalmetals.co.uk, and uh, I'll get back to you. Yeah, great. We'll include those in the show notes accompanying this uh, this episode. So uh but easy access that anyone wants to um, reach out to you, they can do so. And as you mentioned, you're going to be in London uh, later in March uh, 2023, uh, which is a few weeks from, from this recording. So, yeah, those that are listening, please reach out to uh, to Russell if you've got any questions or want to know more about potentially investing in uh, uh, the company Critical Metals. Russell, really appreciate your time. All the best for, for 2023. Um, probably catch up with you in London myself as well. And um, for those that are listening, appreciate your continued support. Please share this episode amongst uh, the mining community. But as I've been saying, 
don't want, I, I want the, the podcast to be shared not just amongst the mining community, but people outside of the mining community. Uh, we need to improve the, the image of, of mining um, around the world. So your continued support, your continued sharing of this podcast um, and these podcast episodes may help turn that tide. It's obviously a, a big journey, um, but every, every little bit helps. So appreciate your continued support. And until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.